It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. I walk into a restaurant in Gaffney, South Carolina to have dinner with an old fraternity brother of mine who, who was in Charlotte um, working. He, he lives in another state in the Midwest, but he was in Charlotte working and we're having the time of our lives. And he told me that even at his age, he'll be 58 in mid-August. So 57, almost 58. He's playing rugby, full contact rugby. And I got friends that get injured taking, you know, Pilates uh, at the gym or hitting golf balls on the driving range. And here's this guy playing full contact rugby at age almost 58. So I'm I'm interested in the story. I don't look at my phone because, number one, it's kind of rude to look at your phone while somebody's in the middle of telling you a story. So I, I wait until I get back in my truck and realize that I had missed an awful lot. Former President Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago was searched by the FBI. I had dozens of texts either, you know, from my federal prosecutor friends telling me what happened or people who are not familiar with the criminal justice system system asking me what happened. And I'm honestly still in the throes of trying to figure out what's 20% of $47 so I can leave the right tip for the, for the waitress at the restaurant. I don't think I got that right, but <laughs> But I, I mean, I, I, I did, you know, look, lawyers aren't good in math. So sure enough, what happens in our modern political culture happened again. If you like the president or more aptly like the president's supporters, then it was an outrage. It was the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of our republic. It's an affront to democracy. It's a prophylactic coup. If you do not like the president, this search was the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the republic. It's evidence of our respect for rule of law. It's the only strand holding the fabric of our democracy together. In other words, despite not knowing anything about the search itself, the affidavit supporting the search warrant, the judge who issued it, what was being looked for, what was found, the factual predicate, many folks already made up their minds. So I did what I usually do in these circumstances, which is call a former federal prosecutor that I used to serve with from the great state of Texas. He was a U.S. attorney because people who work in the system at least know what's supposed to happen. And they're often among the first to remind us that we may need more facts to draw definitive conclusions. So I'm going to keep that trend going and I'm going to uh, consult a federal prosecutor who's a lot smarter than any of that. He was smart enough not to run for Congress, I can tell you that. So am I biased towards prosecutors? Yes. Am I biased towards federal prosecutors when it comes to explaining the justice system to us? Yes. So I'm going to bring in a guy that I actually pay attention to when he's on television. And I can't say that for all lawyers, but I do pay attention when Andy McCarthy talks because uh, he makes an effort to be fair and he knows what he's talking about. So with that long, lengthy introduction, about rugby. Andy McCarthy, thank you for joining us. Trey, it's a pleasure. Please don't ask me to compute 20% of anything. So. <laughs> I just I just uh, took half of what the bill was and gave it to her as a tip uh, for putting <laughs> up with 
for putting up with two old men talking about rugby. So, all right, I want you to take us to law school or take us back to AUSA 101. And these questions are going to be seem very rudimentary to you, Andy, but, but they do vex a lot of people that didn't, you know, do what you did for a living. So start off, tell us what is a search warrant? Search warrant is the most intrusive way that the government goes about getting evidence because there are a variety of, of ways to do it. The most familiar way is the subpoena uh, where Basically, they give you a court order that tells you to produce things at a certain place and time, usually to the grand jury, sometimes to a trial. Uh, but if they don't trust you to produce um, what they are looking for because they're afraid that you might flee if you know you're under suspicion or they're afraid that you'll uh, destroy evidence, they will go to a court. They will have to show probable cause both of a crime having been committed and that the place that they want to search is likely to contain evidence of the crime. And if they convince the judge of probable cause that it, that is pretty much that it's more likely than not that those two things are true, that there was a crime and the evidence will be there. The judge gives them a warrant, which is basically permission to enter the premises, whether you want to have them there or not, including breaking in, if that's what they need to do uh, and searching your private belongings uh, to look for the evidence that uh, they've been authorized to search for. All right, Andy, this stuff rolls off your tongue because it's second nature to you. I want to back up on a couple of those points just to amplify them and make sure people kind of know how the process is supposed to work. Who seeks a search warrant? Well, it's usually in the Justice Department. There, there's uh, different ways of going about it in different jurisdictions. But in the Justice Department, the FBI is usually the lead agency in most criminal investigations. There's some exceptions to that, but we don't need to get into that. Uh, and they work in collaboration with the United States Attorney's Office in the district where the investigation is taking place. So in order to get the warrant, you need a sworn statement of probable cause by a federal law enforcement officer. That's the FBI agent. Typically, Trey, in my experience, I know maybe your district was was different. We wrote that is the prosecutors wrote the warrant. Um, there are some places I know where the law enforcement agents uh, write the warrant or at least they take the first stab at it. But uh, in the Southern District of New York, and I think in most of federal practice, the the prosecutor writes the warrant, the agent swears to it. Uh, and then when I say writes the warrant, what I mean by that is the warrant application. Just to break this down a little more for people, there's a warrant form. Every warrant in, in federal practice looks pretty much the same. That basically is just a short form order by a judge that says there's an investigation of certain crimes that are underway and the agents are authorized to look for the following items um, that has to be presented to the person whose premises are being searched. And then there is the affidavit that the agent files that is kept under seal by the court. It's not given to the person who's being searched and we never get to see it unless and until there are criminal charges that are filed in the case. 
in which case the warrant affidavit has to be turned over to the defense in discovery. All right. Does the warrant have to be specific, particularized? Does it have to be have detail in terms of what specifically they're looking for? Yes. The uh, the a lot of the litigation that goes on over search warrants is, is about this issue of particularity, as we call it in the uh, in criminal law practice. Um, and what that goes back to is really the founding of our country and the and the uh, uh, adoption of the Constitution. Uh, one of the things that the framers were most offended by under British rule was uh, what they called a general warrant, which was, you know, basically uh, on the uh, king's authority, uh, a search could be conducted and they could look for whatever they wanted to look for. They didn't have to particularize uh, what they were seeking or be particularly persnickety in terms of uh, describing what crime they suspected had been committed. So in our system, you have to show probable cause of a crime to convince the judge to give you the warrant. And the warrant has to be particular about what it is you're looking for. Now, just to be clear on this, Trey, because it gets very it gets a little bit complicated here, not so complicated that it, it should blow people away. But um, there are circumstances. Let me I, I think the best way to put it is this. If the agents have a legitimate basis to search, they can seize items even if they're not the items that they were authorized by the warrant to look for. So in other words, let's say I am doing an investigation of somebody for, I don't know, stolen guns. And I show the court that there's probable cause that there are stolen guns being sold out of a particular apartment. If the court gives me the warrant and the agents go to do the search and when they get into the apartment, they find, say, a pile of cocaine on the table. They can seize the cocaine, even though that's not what they were authorized to look for by the warrant. So in other words, they have to have a legal basis to be in the premises, which the warrant for the guns gives them. And then once they're legally on the premises, if they see evidence that is obviously criminal, they're allowed to seize it, even if it's not the evidence that's specified in the warrant. All right. And I'm going to I'm going to risk my luck here by asking you a question that you wouldn't even get on uh, on an advanced criminal procedure law school exam. But I'm doing that for two reasons. Number one, I want to educate the listener. Number two, I have complete confidence that you know the answer to it. Let's assume that the warrant authorizes me to go search for large pieces of stolen art. And the word large is in there. As an FBI agent or ATF or DEA, do I have the authority to look in a small container that I see on somebody's dresser? The, the large art could not be in there. But but some other form of contraband, for, which is not cited in the in the uh, affidavit or search warrant could be. How broad is the power to look for things, even if it's implausible that you would find what you're looking for? It really depends, I think, Trey, on how 
cleverly the warrant has been issued okay. or, or has been written. So, for example, I would write a warrant that uh, tried to get the judge to authorize not only um, the seizure of the art, but any records pertaining to the seizure of the art, which would give me I don't want to call it a pretext because that sounds deceptive, but it would give me a lawful basis to look for to look in nooks and crannies that obviously physically were too small to house the art that I'm looking for, but would be a perfectly rational place for someone to stash records of illegal transactions. That makes perfect sense. All right. I'm going to take you a couple of steps into this process and then we will uh, change gears. The affidavit itself, can it contain evidence that is otherwise inadmissible in court? Uh, Hearsay, um, unnamed informants. How good does the affidavit evidence or testimony have to be? Federal law is very forgiving to the prosecution in terms of what can be submitted as an affidavit, just like it is, by the way, for what kind of evidence you have to uh, present in a grand jury. In a lot of state systems, they require for various um, investigative tactics that the government wants to use, whether it's warrants or subpoenas or what have you, they require uh, a much more exacting showing of evidence before the court uh, allows a warrant or uh, you can't have an indictment in a lot of state systems based on hearsay testimony. You have to actually put in uh, admissible testimony under federal law. That's not how it works. The rules of evidence do not apply to uh, warrants or to grand jury proceedings. You're allowed to proceed by uh, hearsay. Uh, It is typical in a federal search warrant, particularly if you're dealing with violent crime. But in my experience, it's almost any crime. It's typical to refer to unnamed people who are informants. Now, importantly, the warrant has to give the court a basis to believe that even an unnamed source is in a position to say reliably what what the warrant claims the the informant is asserting. So typically what you would say in in a federal search warrant affidavit, for example, would be, let's say it was a drug case. You'd say uh, informant number one, uh, and you might do this in a footnote and say informant number one has provided the FBI with information on six other occasions and it's been corroborated each time. In other words, you're giving the, the court even though you're not identifying the person by name, you're giving the court a basis to believe that that source is a reliable source. So while you don't have to identify people, you do have to give the court a reason to believe that the information is reliable. We're going to pause right there. More of my interview with Andy McCarthy is next. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right. I think you mentioned there has to be a crime. So it can't simply be curiosity. And I mean, there has to be some some crime attached to what they are investigating. Can it be 
a national security matter that that does not uh, implicate a criminal statute? Can you use a search warrant to look for anything other than evidence of a crime? Not a typical search warrant. Uh, The FBI has a night job, uh, which is it's our domestic security service. Um, A lot of people think, why isn't the CIA our uh, intelligence service for matters of foreign counterintelligence? They're not allowed to operate uh, in the domestic United States. We want uh, the national security mission, which is a necessary mission uh, to be done by a an agency that is beholden to the rules of the Constitution. Uh, And the CIA obviously has to violate the law in a lot of places where it operates. So the CIA does not operate domestically. It's our foreign intelligence service in the sense of collecting foreign intelligence. But a lot of as we've as we've seen, particularly in this era of terrorism that goes back to the 1990s, a lot of foreign terrorist organizations and also foreign powers have people inside the United States who are operating here and furthering Uh, the foreign powers interests. So we have a statute that's known as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, FISA, which allows a special federal court, the FISA court, a secret federal court, and uh, usually sits in Washington, um, to issue a warrant if the government can show probable cause that a person is acting as a clandestine agent of a foreign power. Now, there's not to get into the weeds of this, There are ratcheted up requirements if you want to get a FISA warrant on an American person. You virtually have to show that that person is engaged, that the clandestine activities in in furtherance of the foreign power are criminal, or at least there's a high probability that they're criminal. But you don't necessarily have to show a penal crime, a prosecutable crime. You have to show that the person is furthering the interests of the foreign power. Um, But that's the foreign counterintelligence mission. And by the way, Trey, it doesn't relate to what we would call domestic terrorism. Uh, So if you had a group that was wholly a domestic terrorist organization, uh, they would not be liable to be investigated under FISA. FISA is strictly for foreign powers uh, and under FISA law, foreign terrorist organizations are treated as if they were foreign countries or foreign powers. But other than that foreign counterintelligence mission, the answer is no, you can't get a traditional search warrant in the absence of probable cause of a not only a criminal violation, it has to be a federal criminal violation if you want a federal search warrant. So, for example, a lot of crimes are just state crimes. Uh, A push in robbery in New York City, say, is a terrible thing. It's not a federal crime. So you wouldn't be able to get a search warrant from a federal judge on the basis of a state crime. It has to be probable cause of a federal crime. All right. The word probable cause rolls off the tongues of federal prosecutors and former federal prosecutors. What does that mean? Uh, I I usually try to explain it on a, on a you know one to a hundred people here beyond a reasonable doubt they probably know what preponderance means they may know what clear and convincing evidence means but probable cause what does that mean Yeah, it, it, it's a great point to to list all those things because the Supreme Court um, has has said again and again that these are common sense terms 
and they don't want to get hyper-technical about what they mean. And a lot of times when people try to define them, I remembered the first couple of times I had to write jury instructions for a trial. And, you know, I read the probable cause instruction. Uh, I'm sorry, the beyond a reasonable doubt instruction. And I'm thinking, I, I can do better than this. This sounds like gibberish. But every time someone tries to sit down and do better, guess what happens? They don't do better, right? Um, so I think the Supreme Court is quite right to tell people that these are common sense terms and they ought to be understood that way. So probable cause really means what it sounds like, which means it's more likely than not uh, that you will find something there. That's what we think of as probable. If you're going to think about it on a numerical scale, it would be like 50% plus one, right? Um, reasonable doubt uh, is another term that's, uh, again, hard to define, but it's common sense. What it means is a doubt that's based in reason. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to prove guilt beyond all possible doubt, uh, but if it, the doubt has to be one that would cause someone uh, to hesitate in matters of their own ordinary lives, right? And clear and convincing evidence, just to be super scientific about this, is somewhere between those two. Yes. Right? <laughs> I remember how happy I was, Andy. I think it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg that tried to define beyond reasonable doubt as firmly convinced because I was so happy that the jury finally because my judges would not let us define uh, that right. that phrase. Right. They, they said that's my job and the jury's job. Yeah, but right. Firmly convinced, I think, is easier for me to get my head around than beyond a reasonable doubt. However, uh, all right, probable cause is all that's all that's required. Um, all right, let me let me ask you this: When you heard that, well, before I get to that, there could be, and I don't want to split atoms here, but. The FBI could search Andy McCarthy's house because they thought there was evidence of a crime there, even though they don't think you committed the crime. It could be that John Ratcliffe was a dinner guest of yours last week and he left something over at your house. So, I mean, it doesn't always mean they think it's you, even if they're searching your house or, or it's possible. Right. Exactly right. It, the the standard is that they have reason to believe a crime has been committed and evidence of the crime is likely to be located in the place they want to search. They don't have to draw uh, a nexus between the owner of the property and the crime. All right. So when you are probably sitting there reading I Claudius or in search of lost time or some other heady book last night, while I, was watch, was I, was, I was watching the Met game, but okay. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> Anything other than watching Netflix, which is crime dramas on Netflix, which is what I watch. What statutes would have entered the mind of of a former federal prosecutor that knows all this stuff? So you're sitting here thinking, okay, what are they looking for? Well, the first reports that came in were that they were looking for uh, classified information and potential violations of the federal, uh, the Presidential Records Act. And the reason that was meaningful to me, as you say, uh, you know, we follow this stuff. And there has been a controversy that's really, I want to say it's more than a year old. But uh, basically, when President Trump left the White House, he obviously did that very abruptly and in a very chaotic time. And uh, it was reported 
that many items were taken out of the White House, particularly out of the residence. And there were about 15 boxes, at least, that were packed up and, and shipped down to Mar-a-Lago. I want to stress here, by the way, I don't make I'm not making any implication of wrongdoing about President Trump in that regard. Uh, this is this thing that comes up constantly when presidents leave office. Uh, traditionally, up until the Watergate era, uh, the presidents were thought to be the custodians of their own presidential records. We didn't have a presidential records act until Watergate and that whole uh, controversy. So this is something that comes up with virtually every president who leaves office, not everyone, but almost everyone. So I'm not I'm not trying to suggest that the president necessarily did anything wrong by shipping uh, stuff out. You're there's stuff you're allowed to keep and stuff you're not. So, um, Trey, because the January 6th committee, when it was formulated, wanted to subpoena the records of Trump's presidency that are kept at the National Archives. It became known in the in the course of trying to comply with that subpoena, it became known to the National Archives that they hadn't gotten everything back that they should have gotten back. And it turned out that they had a uh, a, a acrimonious back and forth, as I understand it, with the Trump camp about what had been taken and why it had been taken. And a lot of this went on for weeks and weeks between lawyers. This is, again, not uncommon. Um, Finally, in around January of 2022, um, it's reported that President Trump returns about 15 boxes of stuff from Mar-a-Lago to the National Archives. And when they go through it and inventory it, they find what's described as reason to believe that there is classified information, at least some classified documents in the boxes. Now, this raises a lot of things I'm I'm sure you're going to want to discuss, including is it still classified? Because the president, of course, has the authority to declassify information. But let me let me just lay this out first before we get to those complications. Um, Because they find reason to believe that there may have been classified information in these boxes, which also gives them reason to believe there may still be other classified information and other federal records at Mar-a-Lago, they refer this to the Justice Department. So to my mind, the Justice Department has had this in their back pocket since for at least eight months. Um, and usually the way this is handled is by lawyers. Now, the, the classified information aspect of this is a wrinkle. But when there's a dispute between former officials and the government about what things were retained and, and what what they should have retained and what they shouldn't have retained, usually that gets worked out um, by the lawyers for the government, mainly the National Archives uh, and the lawyers for uh, the former official. And that process evidently was ongoing. There's been negotiations for a long time between uh, the Trump camp and the National Archives. Um, the Justice Department suddenly um, did did this search yesterday. And I know everybody keeps talking about an FBI raid. As we've discussed, the FBI actually does the search. But by calling it a raid, people should understand that that's a, you know, that's a that's a pretty provocative and loaded word. This was a, a search pursuant to a search warrant. So it's not 
by calling it a raid, people shouldn't infer from that that uh, that it's illegal in any way. They had a warrant. They were allowed to to do the search. But it's not the FBI's decision. I'm sure this is a decision that's made collaboratively between the FBI and the Justice Department. And I imagine the given the stakes involved, the Justice Department is doing the heavy lifting here. The FBI is part of the Justice Department. Um, they decided to pull the trigger and get a search warrant for this stuff at this late stage. I believe they could have done if they wanted to get a search warrant, they could have done that at any time since August. All right. You mentioned what I kind of refer to as a decision tree. Um, Really, with any search warrant, there are layers of approval within the bureau and within the department. And that's before you even get to a federal judge. I would imagine those layers are even heightened. Uh, when you're talking about a former president of the United States. So it is not unreasonable, I don't think, uh, for us to conclude that the highest echelons of the Bureau and the department would have been in on this decision. But even they can't do it by themselves, right? They have to go to a federal judge. Yeah, you know, I actually think that um, this is so counterproductive because the more sign-offs that you get, the less accountability it seems like you get in this equation. Um, I'm reminded of uh, some of the investigations. I think you were in, you were still in Congress at this at this point, but the, some of the investigations that were done in connection with the the FISA warrants that were issued uh, against mainly against a guy who was a former advisor uh, to the Trump campaign in 2016. All those had to be signed off. Uh, at the top echelons of the Justice Department and uh, the FBI. And then when, you know, there were congressional inquiries about it, everybody was saying, well, you know, I thought that these people had signed off on it. So, you know, I didn't really need to to look at it all that carefully. I relied on staff. I, You know, the more people you have involved in it, the less it just seems to be the, the less likely that you're you're going to get what the statute is obviously aiming for, which is a high degree of uh, accountability from these agencies. But um, it is no matter whose sign off you need in a in a let's just tell people in an ordinary case in my office that didn't have any political implications or national security or foreign policy implications, just a normal everyday case. I would have to get approval from my unit chief to issue a search warrant. If it was a close case, the unit chief would have been expected to know that you you better get the chief of the criminal division to sign off. But that's like a common sense thing. Um, in certain instances, there are things that you require Justice Department sign off on. The search warrants, generally speaking, are not among them. But, you know, common sense says that if you have a case that involves heavy duty political or national security implications, you know, that's above your pay grade that has to go up higher and get signed off. And it may even have to get signed off outside the the Justice Department. When I when I wanted to indict the blind sheikh and the the terrorists, the jihadists who, um, you know, bombed the World Trade Center and they're going to bomb other sites in New York, um, that had major foreign policy implications, because if we had gone another route and tried to, for example, uh, get him kicked out of the country that could have destabilized uh, a lot of countries that 
the United States has relations with. So it was not a call that the Justice Department could make on its own. There were other uh, people, as they say in the government, uh, agencies that had equity in the uh, in the equation. Uh, so, you know, if you're talking about an investigation of a former president of the United States and we should we should tell people the Justice Department has never in 200 and however many years. Well, I guess the Justice Department since 18, what, 1875, I think. But the Justice Department has never indicted a former president of the United States. So the thought that some, you know, assistant U.S. attorney and his unit chief is going to sign off on that and everybody's going to be peachy with that. I don't think so. Um, so I, I'm sure this was a high level sign off, but you're quite right. No matter who had to sign off on it, if it's a search warrant, you got to go to a judge. Were you ever present when when uh, an affiant was in front of a a magistrate or a district court judge seeking a search warrant and, and heard a colloquy? Uh, I mean, do the judges ever say, well, I mean, what is this or, or are you sure? I mean, is there back and forth? There is. Uh, now, there's no transcript for it. At least there wasn't. Um, you know, I haven't been a prosecutor for almost 25 years now, but there was not back then. There, these were not transcribed. But not only does that go on, Trey, um, I had to go back and rewrite warrants on the basis of judges questions often to firm up this or that. And I I, I must say a, a lot of times I found it um, uh, to be bothersome because we felt like we had thought it through. A lot of times judges asked really good questions that made me think about the case uh, in a way that was uh, was to the benefit of the prosecution, ultimately. So those those interchanges can actually be very helpful. Yeah, you mentioned some of the congressional investigations, Andy. I found a lot of people who signed off on those um, applications. I just didn't find anybody who had read them. Uh, I saw a lot of signatures. I just couldn't find anybody who said, yeah, I actually read it. Yeah. And, you know, Trey, I I can't from the culture I came from. This is one of the things I don't get about Washington. And I look, I'm very much a New York person, not a not a Washington person. Uh, In my office, it was it was common, especially in big cases, to get calls at three o'clock in the morning from the U.S. attorney asking, well, what about this and what about that? Um, if I had when I ran a satellite U.S. attorney's office, if we were going to have a big indictment where the U.S. attorney was coming up to to have a press conference about the case, God forbid he or she got asked a question that I hadn't prepped them for. So I come from a culture where like the people in charge wanted to know because they fi- they figured it was going to be their in a sling if um, if they were wrong or if we were wrong about something. Uh, we didn't have a situation where like people were hiding under their desk, not wanting to know things because then they'd be expected to do something about it. So um, uh, that's a very different culture to me. I don't I don't really get that. All right. I'm going to I'm going to pass some of the questions I got last night from my from my friends and, and others who reached out to me because I'm going to steal your answer and then take credit for it. Uh, I heard Secretary Clinton's name a lot last night. Um, they want to know the Bureau didn't treat her this way. They did not handle the investigation. So I, I have this bad habit. I do want to be fair. I try to be fair. I try to see if they're like points of distinction. So let's start with this. Is the statute involved the same? You mentioned the Presidential Records Act. Does that apply to non-presidents? Um 
So are there two different statutes at play? And is that a distinction that makes any difference at all? Yeah, this is a this is a great and important question because it goes to what you were asking me before about what the agents would be allowed to take once they got into the residence. And it's a good concrete example. So the Presidential Records Act is not a criminal statute. It's uh, it's basically guidance that presidents are expected to follow and the national uh, the national archives is supposed to guide them through it. And, you know, you get you get compliance for the for the most part, but it doesn't have the teeth of a criminal statute. By contrast, mishandling classified information is is criminalized by a number of statutes in the federal code. uh, And it is a crime. So presumably what the Justice Department, if that was the basis for the warrant, um, and again, we're having to go on reporting on this, Trey, because as we discussed before, this is not public. Although I would point out that President Trump, uh, or at least the people down at Mar-a-Lago, must have a copy of the warrant. So at least they have some information about it. They wouldn't have the uh, underlying affidavit, but they'd have the warrant. So I would assume that to get the warrant, they would have to cite the classified information, the mishandling of classified information. However, the Presidential Records Act is not irrelevant to this because, as we discussed earlier, once the agents are legitimately searching, they are permitted to seize things that are obvious violations of law. And if this all happens in the context of an investigation that was launched because of violations of the Presidential Records Act, even though that might not have gotten them the warrant, I would be arguing as the uh, as the United States attorney or as the FBI's counsel in the situation that if they saw White House records, that would be among what they the things that they were allowed to take, even if they were not obviously classified information. So and even I think- if there's no criminal there's no criminal penalty for a violation of the Presidential Records Act. Your your argument would still be it can be seized. It can right. be, be taken. Yeah, because remember what I'm looking for, and I don't mean to be uh, I don't mean to go lawyer on everyone here, but that's what we're doing. Right. Um, that is evidence of the violation of classified information mishandling, even if it is itself not classified information, for example, and it might be evidence that's helpful to President Trump, by the way. So, for example, if if somebody just took a stack of stuff without going through it carefully and put it in a box, and it turns out that somewhere buried in the stack is a classified document, that's actually something that's helpful to Trump if the agents take it because it's government records, because it sh- it would it would lend itself to the suggestion that he wasn't purposely trying to uh, convert classified information to his own use. So it would be evidence that's relevant to the thing that that is under investigation. But I would be I would be very elastic in terms of what I thought I would be able to take if it was government, if it was obvious government records. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. You touched upon this and I wanted to save it towards the end because I don't know how many people know this. Um, presidents have the power, sitting presidents have the power to declassify information, correct? Yes. All right. 
So does the president have to declare that intention to someone? Can it can it remain in his or her mind? In other words, is the defense, whatever classified information you may have found at Mar-a-Lago, I had told one of my uh, staffers, I'm declassifying this. They just they just didn't do anything about it. I think the um, the precise answer to this is we don't know. (laughs) Um, You know, for the most part, this is one of these things where um, when this comes up, ordinarily it comes up in the context of a presidential administration and the president is in a position to say, I have declassified it. I believe that this may even have come up in connection with um, remember the uh, the investigation into the leak of Valerie Plame's status as a, a CIA agent. Yes. Uh, And there was some issue about whether government officials who discussed that with the media were authorized by by President Bush to do that. Uh, And I I believe what the White House's position was that was that the president had authorized it, even though there was nothing in writing that that said so. To me, that's not a big deal. If the president is in power, if he says, "I, I say it's declassified, then it's declassified. I don't think we've ever had a situation where you have a former president who is now holding classified information who had the power undoubtedly at some point to declassify the information. But it's a question whether he timely did it while he still had the power or not. And it would seem to me that that's probably a fact question that will have to be resolved in the in the proceedings. I don't know if there's a hard and fast rule for that one. Yeah, that's the first thing that went through my mind is I think there's an old tweet. I was talking about this with someone who worked with the president. He's also a former federal prosecutor. There's an old tweet, I think, where the president said, well, I'm declassifying everything that relates to X. I don't know if you can do it via tweet. Maybe you can. I don't know if you need to initiate steps with White House counsel or if you can just deem it so. Um, Yeah, I I, I think. In connection with the tweets, my recollection is there was a there was a number of cases where this came up in litigation about whether those were official uh, records of the government and official statements of of uh, the president. And ultimately, um, I think where the Justice Department came out was that that uh, tweets were not formal presidential orders that like, you know, there were a number of things that President Trump said he would do. Or, or had done by tweet, but unless he had dotted all the I's and actually issued a formal uh, executive order, I think they took the position that the the tweet was um, w- was not worth much as a as a directive. Although it could be evidence of intent if it's yep, if you're trying to figure out someone's state of mind. Yep. All right, Andy. The reason I like listening to you um, is I, I I think you know I can't speak for your experience. I do not know the politics of either of the AUSAs that sat in the offices on either side of me. I, I can guess uh, because when they donated to my congressional campaign, they both said I've never supported a Republican before. So I can guess what their politics, but there's there's almost something refreshing. I'm not talking about D.C. I'm talking about once you get out of D.C., that, that you work for something bigger than just politics. At the same time, it's been a rough six six years for the Bureau and the department and a politicization or perceived, perceived or real politicization 
So as you sit back and you think, well, okay, we went through Hillary Clinton's mishandling of classified information. Jim Comey, I believe you, your memory is better than mine, but I think there was an allegation that Comey took some stuff home. Right. If I'm wrong, then I apologize no, you're, you're, to him. You're correct about that. Yep. All right. So for people trying to reconcile these three fact patterns, um, is it possible? And, and, and how do we get to the point where, I'm not going to do anything for my friends that I wouldn't do for my foes. And I'm not going to go after my foes in a way that I would not also expect my friends to be investigated. How do we get to that point? Yeah. I, you know, as you say that I really regret the, the place that we're now at because I had a similar experience. I mean, I was a conservative lawyer in New York. Uh, my best friends, including my best friends in the office were uh, left to center people. And the only time politics mattered is if we went out for beers on a Friday night and, you know, um, and most of it was in good fun more than anything else. But as far as like doing the work was concerned, all that stuff never, I mean, it got checked at the door and it never made any difference. And I always, I, I, you know, people, people ask me how I do what I do now. And I don't really think it's that hard to do it because I've always tried to be clinical about this stuff. You know, the reason you and I didn't come up in journalism, um, you know, we come up from a culture where, you know, if you get something wrong, it's your obligation to tell the court, I got something wrong. Uh, you know, you're you're supposed to be the first one to let them know you got something wrong. Um, and, you know, where I come from, the politics of your prosecutor shouldn't be any different from the, you know, make any more difference in the politics of your chiropractor. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a clinical job. You figure out what the facts are. Uh, you figure out what the law is. You apply the, the, you know, the latter to the former. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's how you get to the result. And we had political corruption cases. We prosecuted Republicans. We prosecuted Democrats. It didn't seem to me like it, um, uh, it made much of a difference. Uh, in fact, people would be surprised to learn in the um, in the uh, post Clinton presidency, uh, I had one of the um, investigations of of the pardons uh, in the uh, satellite office I was running, where Mrs. Clinton was one of the people who was being uh, looked at, and I was arguing that I didn't think we had a case against her because of the Constitution and some. Uh, Progressive friends of mine in the office were arguing the other way that, um, you know, that we ought to continue the investigation and perhaps prosecute her. So if all you knew about us was our political proclivities, you would have figured it came out the other way. But actually, that's, you know, we just saw it differently as a matter of law. And that's the way it should be. It, we've lost that. I mean, there's no uh, there's no getting around this in the last eight years. We've lost that. And I think Bill Barr was right. When he said, we have to get the Justice Department out of politics, we have to get the politics out of the Justice Department. And the best way to do that is to limit the Justice Department's involvement in politically fraught cases, particularly cases that have anything to do with electoral politics, to what Barr called meat and potatoes crimes. In other words, like in the in the U.S. Attorney's Office I came from, ethos of the office was to be creative and they like prosecutors who push the envelope. And I have to say back in those days when I was younger, I kind of liked that too. That was the fun part of the job. It's the challenging part of the job. 
uh, as I've gotten older and hopefully wiser, I don't think that's a good thing in any context. I mean, I think it's a hard enough thing to prosecute fairly. It's not the Justice Department's job to criminalize things that Congress hasn't criminalized. But whether I'm right or I'm wrong about that, that's got to be the rule of the road in cases that have any connection to politics. So unless you have compelling evidence that somebody has committed a clear crime that everybody can wrap their brain around, then I don't think the Justice Department should be pushing the envelope in political cases. And what I'm what I'm fearful with President Trump is um, I don't think I think that if there was evidence that Trump was actionably connected to the violence of the riot, that that's a case that has to be brought because nobody's above the law. And that's no matter what ism fuels political violence, it's got to be prosecuted and should be done even handedly. But if you can't get them on a violent crime and it doesn't look like they have that evidence, um, I think it would be a real mistake to indict him on these theories like um, obstruction of Congress based on John Eastman's loopy legal theory about whether Pence had the authority to discount electoral votes or the even more creative uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States where prosecutors could just basically make up crimes that the, the Congress has never uh, criminalized. I, I, I think that you, you run into two big problems. One is we'd be criminalizing frivolous legal theories, which I have to say, when I was a prosecutor, if, if, a legal, if a frivolous legal theory is a felony now, I could have prosecuted five felonies a day on frivolous legal theories. I don't think that's a road we want to go down. And secondly, if you go down that road with a not only a former president, but one who stands potentially to be a candidate of, against the incumbent administration in the next election, you're basically writing the script that you're now turning the Justice Department into a political weapon against your opposition. And, you know, if if we were on a clean slate, Trey, maybe that would be something you could understand that we would stumble into. But after the history of the last eight years, if we make that mistake again, then, you know, there's something really wrong with us because this is this has now been like the late motif of the last decade almost. And if we haven't gotten it through our thick heads by now, that this this interaction between the Justice Department and electoral politics is combustible, I don't know what it's going to take before we get the message. All right, Andy, I'm going to let you go with with this question for people who have listened and said, you know, Andy, I want to be more like that. I, I, I haven't been to law school, didn't work in the United States attorney's office, don't have your background, but I like the way you try to reach the right, fair, just result. What should I be looking for in the days to come? I'm not going to see the search warrant return. I'm not going to see the affidavit. But but what should I be on the lookout for? As a, as a fair-minded observer to help me kind of make up my mind in the days and weeks to come? I think the chess game here is the Justice Department does not want to prosecute President Trump for a classified information violation, particularly one that they gave Hillary Clinton a pass on. Um, this is the, you know, this is the Biden Justice Department after the Obama Biden Justice Department gave the last pass. I don't think they want to 
go after Trump for something they let uh, Mrs. Clinton skate on. However, they do want to investigate Trump uh, in connection with the Capitol riot. They're getting a lot of political heat to do that. Um, a lot of people in the Democratic base don't think that uh, Garland has acted quickly enough and, and uh, with enough energy uh, on that score. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is a little bit of theater to show that the Justice Department is is really on the case here. Um, in particular, doing search warrants when you don't need search warrants, you know, when you could have called the lawyer and say, you know, you need to produce these documents. Instead, they they get a, a search warrant. What I would be looking for is I suspect that this search at Mar-a-Lago was done pretextually. That is, they may say they're looking for classified documents, but what they're actually trying to do is find evidence that could link Trump to crimes arising out of the Capitol riot under circumstances where the Justice Department does not want to say publicly that Trump is a subject of a Capitol riot criminal investigation, which would have a lot of consequences for all these other cases that they're they're prosecuting. Uh, And they don't want to be seen as like having gone to a court and said we have probable cause that he obstructed Congress or that he, you know, defrauded the United States. So this classified information situation gave them the pretext they needed to conduct a search they'd like to conduct in connection with January 6th without having to say that it's about January 6th. And what I would be looking for is evidence that, yes, this was probably pretextual. And secondly, what is it they're looking for in connection with January 6th? I think it's two things. One, and this is a real leap, is there anything that ties him in a conspiratorial way to violence? It looks certainly like there's not, but you know that's one thing they're looking for. Secondly, and I think this is more realistic, can they find anything out of his own mouth or out of the mouths of the people so close to him that it's like out of his own mouth, where he says that he knows that the stop the steal stuff and all of the uh, allegations about fraud in the election were just that, that they were phony, that he knew it was uh, that that the Eastman legal theory was empty, that he knew that these fraud allegations were empty because where they've got to get to minimally to make a case on him is to show that he knew what he was saying was false. And yet uh, he he peddled this uh, Eastman theory in order to try to derail the electoral count uh, in the joint session of Congress. Um, I, I think, Trey, that's where they got to get to. They, they're trying to they're trying to. And this will be very hard with Trump because I think he's convinced himself that the election was stolen, even even if the evidence isn't there. But I think they are trying to find that smoking gun evidence that he really was understood that what he was doing was fraudulent. All right. I got to let you go because you got to get ready for a Mets game whenever that comes up. You got to get <laughs> dressed in your baseball gear. And so I'm going I'm to let you go with what I hope to be a fun walk for you down memory lane. I know right now you write a lot. You commentate a lot. I mean, there's really not a big legal issue that people don't want you. God knows how many invitations you've had to go on. Uh television just in the last 24 hours do you miss the courtroom do you ever get back in a courtroom and where do you rank that 
your time as an AUSA in term, when you look back on your career, where does that rank in terms of enjoyment and fulfillment? Uh, it's the proudest part of my career. Uh, it's the way I still think of myself. There's not a day that goes by that I don't miss being in the courtroom. And there's not a day that goes by that I miss getting ready to be in the courtroom. <laughs> well said. The uh, the <laughs> contrast between actually being in the courtroom and what you have to do to get ready. Only a real litigator would make that distinction. So, Andy McCarthy, I can't thank you enough. I've learned a lot, and I'm supposed to already know this stuff or some of it. Uh, I can't thank you enough. It, it's a highly political, highly charged issue, but I wanted to look at it the same way we're supposed to look at things, which is, you know, through the facts and the law. So I can't thank you enough for joining us. And I had a ball, Trey. Thanks so much. All right. Good luck to your Mets, too. And thank <laughs> you all for listening to us. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.